Good morning. So for those who don't know me, I'm Frances Borgioni, and I work here with uh, Community Care. And uh, hey, Lynn, <laughs> Jill, come on up. I want to introduce a very special um, guest speaker today. And um, this is Jill Howard, and she is also one of my very best friends. And we have known each other for probably close to 20 years, which means that um, well, we have a lot of dirt on each other, <laughs> and, um, and I'm taking bribes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully she doesn't surprise me with any of my dirt, and she sticks to her own today. Um, but it's all about uh, you, Fran. Jill, if I had to say a quality that I think is important in a in a friendship, it's this history. Like when you have history with someone, you have a lot of years to go through ups and downs of life and share through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, Jill has certainly been that friend with me in my life and hopefully me with her too. Um, but uh, if I had to just say what I love about Jill is that she is someone I can laugh harder with than probably anyone on this planet. And uh, she is also one that I've cried with in some of my darkest hours that very few have seen. So um, let me pray for Jill, and uh, then we're going to jump in. So Father, um, thank you for my friend. Thank you for her story. Thank you for the things that you've laid on her heart to share with us today. And um, Lord, I know that everyone here has a story that, that is important and that you're writing something. There, there's something about the stories that we live that mirrors the bigger story that you're writing uh, through your son Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection. And so uh, I pray for Jill this morning that she could just share her story in a way that um, speaks of your heart and what you're, what you're writing in our own lives. So we give this to you and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, we're going to do this interview style. That's why we have the chairs up here. And to get started, we're going to first show you a little video that is uh, close to Jill's heart and really spoke to hers. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That video 
And those verses are particularly meaningful to me given the course that I was given to run in my life. And as an endurance runner, um, some of that running was literal. Yeah, so um, Jill's a runner. And um, I know that years ago you started sharing some of your dreams with me, Jill, about what you thought life was going to look like and what you hoped it would look like in some of your dreams. So can you share with them what that dream was? Absolutely. I was a sponsored endurance athlete, and most of that was triathlon. I did triathlon for many, many years, competed on Team USA uh, for uh, triathlon world championships, and that was a dream in itself for me. Um, completed an Ironman. And, um, oh, eventually, through the encouragement of many in the athletic community, I was encouraged to go for the Olympic marathon trials. Me. <laughs> so this Little Jill. <laughs> what? Little Jill. Little Jill. And that resurrected a dream in me that I never told anybody, that from a ch small child I wanted to be an Olympic athlete. And so, you know, I wasn't delusional to think it nearing my 40s that I was going to make the Olympic team, I just wanted to run in the trials. And I didn't care if I was dead last. I wanted to run in the trials. So that was my dream. And I truly thought that God had put this dream in my heart uh, to inspire and encourage others and to glorify Him. So I was determined that this is, this is the path. This is what He's telling me to do. And I had it all planned out. I got myself a world-class Olympic coach, and that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I was gunning for it with all determination. I was going to do this. And what, my folks sitting up front know, once I set my mind to something, I am very determined. <laughs> so uh, around that time, um, it may have been a little bit earlier, I was given a prophecy about Lookout Mountain Community Church um, by three women who didn't know who I was, they didn't know I was an athlete. Um, they certainly didn't know my aspirations. But this one lady said, Jill, I just see you in a gym, and you're running and striving. And she emphasized the word striving. Um, and God wants you to know that all that striving is not going to give you the miracle that he has for you. So me being Miss Determination, um, I interpreted that when I think back on it later, I would think, oh, that validates, that means I'm going to make the Olympic trials. And uh, so all the more so, I thought that was validation for my dream. And um, I would learn later as years would pass, oh, let me back up and say, so as years would pass, I would forget the dream or the, the prophecy and it would pop back in my mind, I'd be driving or something and I'd think, hey God, you mentioned that there's a miracle for me, when, is, when am I going to get that miracle, <laughs> when's that coming? And I did hold on to that, expecting a miracle. So um, later I would realize that um, my plans were not necessarily God's plans and uh, it reminds me of the verse in Proverbs 16:9 that says, "In his heart a man plans his course, um, but the Lord determines his steps." Yeah. So Jill, I know you had your plans, and uh, some things started to change. So start share about how those plans started to change for you. Well, those plans changed drastically. It was not how I envisioned it. Um, in July 2011. I was at my peak shape, my peak performance, and I was really making strides, so to speak, toward that dream. And um, I, it was end of July 2011, near your birthday, and uh, I ran the most I ever had in one week. I ran about 90 miles, followed by my best 10K race ever. So I guess that makes it, what, 96.2 that week, <laughs> miles. And I uh, was just uh, so excited. And several days later, my body just literally shut down just like that. William was with me on that run, and it wouldn't, my body wouldn't allow me to run more than 10 minutes um, for the next two years. So every time uh, I tried to get back up on that saddle and try again, I'm going to do this, my body protested and sent me back to the couch in debilitating fatigue, um, and this would progress, this fatigue, for the next two years. Um, I had other symptoms. I had nausea, um, dizziness, bouts of vertigo, but mostly I had debilitating fatigue. And this would culminate in, well, eventually I'd become a, a recluse couch potato and isolated myself from the world, um, from you, from everybody. I didn't have energy. By the grace of God, I was able to keep my job somehow, which was just a couple blocks down the street. And as I would gain 30 pounds over the co course of two years, I couldn't fit my professional clothes anymore. I'd pull up my sweats, and thankfully, I was inside sales, so I talked to my clients on the phone, and they didn't have to see me. <laughs> but, 
Um, somehow I kept my job, uh, but the debilitation was so bad that I would call William, my boyfriend on the phone, who lived a, a mile away from me, and I would say, can you come take my, my dog potty? Because it was, it was too hard to step out my door uh, to take my dog potty. And I would just go through fast foods. That's one reason I gained weight, um, because I, I didn't have the energy to, to cook my meals to, to make food. So basically, I just watched movies, literally, for two years, pretty much, over and over and over and over, and just anesthetized myself with movie watching. So I saw multiple, sought out multiple doctors, um, trying to figure out what's going on, what's wrong with my body. I would see a doctor that would just chalk it up as depression. Um, somebody else at work said, are you sure this isn't in your head? And then I would land on a, a sports, med, uh, sports med doctor in Boulder, and I would see him throughout the course of the two years, trying to figure out um, what was wrong. We were just mystified. So during the course, um, as I got of my illness, as I got further along, further away from my dream, and as I'd realized later, closer to God's dream, um, I, I would pray, Lord, if you put this dream in my heart to go for the Olympic trials, why did you sideline me and why for so long? And I wasn't angry with him. I could have been and he would have been just fine with that. Like you mentioned, wrestling with God. He would have wrestled right there with me and walked alongside my anger. But I didn't have anger. I was given a strong sense that I was still in the middle of the story and that I couldn't see the big picture. And I, I just hung on to that. And as time would go on and I would be praying, um, in the second year of my illness, I remember hearing in my thoughts, I'm making a new Jill. And I, I felt like he was dangling hope before me. And I grabbed onto that hope with everything as I was getting more and more ill. And it reminds me of the verse in Revelation 21 that says, I make all things new. And he is, he is making all of us new and is in the process of that. Um, so I fell ill in July 2011. April 2013, I would go back to my sports med doc as I did throughout the course of the two years. And I said, you know, I'm really having troubles concentrating at work. I am staring at my computer screen, wondering what I'm supposed to do next. He says, oh, classic symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. And I, at this point, as William points out, I was pretty much a zombie at this point. Uh, the debilitation had really progressed, and I just trusted what the, the doc said. I hadn't been to the doctor much in my life. I thought I was healthy my whole life. And so I just trusted that all doctors knew what they were saying. And, uh, oh, okay. And then fast forward to September 2013, when I would develop excruciating headaches. Um, this was the worst pain of my life. And I've never known pain like that. And in retrospect, my brain was swelling, and it was pinching spinal fluids uh, to my brain. My folks sitting out right there <laughs> who watched the whole thing with me. Um, I was in a place of such desperation at that point um, that I was literally on my knees sobbing to the Lord for a diagnosis and pleading with him to rescue me. And that song, that Mandisa song that Melanie sang so beautifully, uh, really touched my heart, Melanie. Um, that was a song that came to me during that time. And uh, Wilson Phillips, who remembers them, um, hold on for one more day, things will go your way. Um, and the, wa the waves are taking you under in that Mandisa song, hold on just a little bit longer. Um, this is making you stronger. Those songs came to me, and I hung on to those songs, and I literally played them over and over and over and over in my sheer desperation um, for hope to just hang in there. Because at this point, I was, I was just hanging on for dear life. I was in so much pain. And in September, things were progressing daily, I think, at this point. Um, not over like the course of the two years, it was gradual. But in September, it was going daily, pretty much. And these, nothing alleviated these headaches. Um, they would last 13, 14 hours. So I went back to my sports med doc with my dad, who's sitting on the front row. And I said, do you think I could have a brain tumor? Crazy question, but I was so desperate. And there was something in me that didn't believe the chronic fatigue syndrome because um, something was severely wrong with my body at that point. So I said, do you think I could have a brain tumor? And he took a flashlight and he looked into my eyes. He said, no, no tumor there. <laughs> and dad was a witness. <laughs> 
And then two weeks later, literally two weeks later, I took matters into my own hands and by the suggestion of William to go get an MRI. And, uh, and we did get an MRI and I was diagnosed with a baseball-sized mass in my brain. And this, is, this was the tumor up in the upper left there. It's actually the right frontal lobe. Um, but you see it opposite on the screen, and it was sitting on major arteries and vessels, and it was pushing over it into the other hemisphere of my brain. So hence the pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to jump in here and just say that um, I remember the phone call I got from Jill's mom, who was sitting down here. I was on my way home from work, and I was just walking in the building and about to go into uh, our condo downtown where I knew Bill was. And, and um, Sandy, Jill's mom, had called me and, and said, um, the doctors found a large mass in Jill's brain. And the first thing that went to my head was just, it's a death sentence. And I'm going to lose my Jill. I just, I just burst into tears and, and grabbed Bill and just hung on to him. And it was a very hard moment to hear that news. And um, so Jill, tell us your response to that diagnosis. Yeah, let me first say that of course, hearing that you have a large mass in your brain, it could be very frightening. And it was for my friends and family. Um, you don't want to hear that you have a mass on your brain. Um, typically, when you hear mass, you think cancer, you think death, and I think that's where my family and friends' mind went. However, I was in such a place of desperation that I was relieved. I was actually relieved. Mom was sitting next to me in the ER, and her jaw literally dropped when we got the diagnosis, and I said, hang on, let's, let's see what we're dealing with next. And I actually, prior to receiving the diagnosis, after the MRI, I said, Mom, this sounds strange, but I really hope they find something. That way we know what to do with it and how to move forward. And then when we received the diagnosis, I looked at her and said, this means I'm going to get my life back. Now, whether it was um, grace of God, denial, or really good pain meds, <laughs> I never thought cancer or death. That didn't cross my mind. I thought this was hope that I was going to get my life back. And um, so they admitted me to the neuro ICU admit, uh, immediately. And uh, I would be assigned to Dr. Van Sickle, who I would learn later would become my hero. And uh, he would explain the type of tumor I had is called a meningioma, and that it was a 92% chance that it would be benign. So that my family was able to breathe a little better at, at that news. And um, he also explained that because of how large it was and how slow-growing meningiomas are, that it could have been growing in my head for 20 to 30 years. So that would put me at about 12 to 22 years old when that thing started growing. And I tell my folks that all that bad behavior that I had <laughs> had to have been the tumor. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm off the hook. So. In that first meeting with Dr. Van Sickle, and Francis was actually there um, during this moment in this conversation in Duncan and in a room full of people. And I told my neurosurgeon, Dr. Van Sickle, I, I'm more afraid of the surgery than I am of the tumor. And he looked at me compassionately and he said, oh no, you have that backwards. He said, if this had gone undetected, it would have killed you by stroke within six months. And I began to cry. I was trying to be tough and positive, but at this news, I began to cry because this was my first realization of how gravely ill I was and how close to death I was. And just the awareness of if I had stayed with my sports med doctor, who said I didn't have a tumor, um, by looking into my eyes, if I had stayed with him, um, I would have died. And this realization was hitting me strongly. And the reality was because the tumor was sitting on such major arteries and vessels, I could have stroked at any, mom at any moment. And I'm being told that it wouldn't have been revivable, it would have been like that. So to me, um, this is all the more so a, a miracle. So, so Jill, as you were getting ready to face surgery, um, tell everyone what you were going through as you were thinking going into surgery and then the outcome. Tell about that part. Well, well I awaited brain surgery for an entire week while I was put on stroke watch. I had another procedure before surgery um, where the two doctors had to coordinate their schedule, so I had to wait an entire week, and um, that's a long time to process going into brain surgery and what your life could look like after that. Um, 
I had, uh, last night, I had my chaplain with me, and, uh, and that was really special. He came in within 24 hours and really helped me process through what life could possibly look like after surgery and helped me face the things that mattered most. Um, Dr. Van Sickle said that I could possibly have coordination issues, and uh, I was facing it. I didn't know if I'd be able to talk without slurring. I didn't know if I would be able to walk um, straight, let alone run again. And if I was going to run, um, I didn't think, certainly didn't think it would be at the level that I was at when I was going for the Olympic trials. In fact, Dr. Van Sickle said, if you do run, um, maybe a jog around the block. And I think he literally said it that way. And so Edre was very functional in letting me focus on the me that was cre created in the image of God rather than me, the athlete, Jill, the athlete, and detached me. And the whole two years when I gained the 30 pounds and that whole two-year process of illness really helped strip me down away from defining Jill as the athlete and Jill more made in the image of God. Um, so I, I had accepted that I wouldn't know that Jill again. Um, I was determined to stay positive. Uh, as an athlete, <laughs> you know that it's really important to go into race day with a strong mind and a positive mind, and I approached brain surgery as the big race day. And so I was determined. I wasn't in denial, but I didn't allow any negative thoughts to enter my mind. Um, I didn't think it was productive to think about the what-ifs or, or any of that, so I didn't dwell on that. And it really helped that I was just bathed, bathed in love, and it just completely shocked me how many people, I had a steady flow of people, mom says I had a party in my room every night um, <laughs> that, that whole week awaiting brain surgery. Peter and Susan came, and Francis and Bill, and uh, really kept my spirits high, and I was never left alone. Um, and this became very functional, very uh, eye-opening to me of the importance of, of presence, which I'll touch on here in a moment. But um, I felt loved for me instead of for how I performed. I was just sitting there pretty much vulnerable and helpless. There was no, nothing I could give to anybody at that point, and I was being bathed in this love more than I ever felt more love than I ever have in my life. And I felt the presence of God more than I ever have. In fact, sometimes I long to be back in that place, that stripped-down place, to feel that presence and that love again, and I have a, a memory to reference that. Um, but I was in a position of complete surrender. I'm lying there in my hospital bed. Um, I, I had to have the surgery or I would die. It was that black and white. And um, I was in a place of complete surrender. Not often do you have that opportunity where you have no other choice to surrender because that's a tough thing to do when you have plenty of choice to surrender. I can't do it now. I have a hard time surrendering now. <laughs> but, but I did. I don't. Huh? No, I said I don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Fran doesn't, of course. <laughs> but um, so I was lying there facing surgery, and, and um, I remember having this conversation with the Lord, and I said, um, Lord, I realize that all this time I've been handing you the script to how I am going to glorify you and how I think I should glorify you. Here you go. This is what it says, and be sure and follow this part right here. And, uh, and I said, from now on, um, I'll let you write the script to my, to my life. I said, but I'm so feisty and determined. You made me that way. And um, so I'm going to need help to have you push me out of the way when I start writing my script again. Um, but here you go. You write it. And um, I was in a place uh, to where I was stripped down to what mattered most and, and stripped down to what I knew myself to be. So I want to read you a couple of journal entries that I wrote fresh out of the hospital, one of them, this first one was fresh out of the hospital, and I was in a very vulnerable state, and I was still processing all that had happened to me, and had just had a very profound experience in the hospital. Um, now, I have a journalism degree, but don't mind the grammar in this, because <laughs> I wrote this down very quickly, trying to get the thought at the time, um, and I said, sitting outside Ann Taylor before Christmas 2013, waiting for mom while she bought my Christmas gift. <laughs> Um, observed people around me being busy, fast-paced, shallow, and clueless to the deeper things in life, which I had just experienced facing potential death in the hospital. Particularly noticed a woman dressed, dressed to the hilt with lots of bags. She appeared vain and materialistic. The observations made me cry and long for the hospital experience again, made me not want to go back into the world. I had been so stripped down 
uh, that watching all that materialism and busyness repulsed me, made me long for the deeper things in life like I experienced in the hospital with the bonding of my family and the sharing of deep love, love at its rawest form, hanging on to that which is most important while facing potential death. And there's one more entry here that I wrote on a blog a year into my recovery, and also touching on being stripped down here. And, and I said, I found a journal entry from one year ago saying, I cried hard during church service at the words in worship, just like Vince played earlier, empty-handed, but alive in your hands. That's how I am in this season of my life. While I'm sure some of that emotion was, going, was coming from lingering effects of the anesthesia, I was probably still assimilating all that had happened to me. I was empty-handed, had nearly lost my life, lost my job after surgery, was bankrupt and facing losing my home, all while trying to bounce back and heal. My neurosurgeon, my hero, Dr. Van Sickle, said that it is common for the kind of tumor I had, a meningioma, um, to render people homeless because of how the tumor disables people from, from handling day-to-day -day responsibilities. But my tears at church weren't so much for the empty-handed line in the song as it was for the alive-in-your-hands line. My gratitude for the things that I had gained far outweighed the tough things I was going through. It was a choice for my own brain health to focus on the positives and to live with gratitude and not be kept down by some of the toxic things ha happening around me. Besides, when you trust in a sovereign God uh, that is in control, you have more freedom to give things because you know that he works all things to the good of those that love him. So part of the blessing of being stripped down to the bare minimum is that you more easily recognize the things that matter most. And that's the place where I felt God and the outpouring of everyone's love most. So before surgery, the week finally came, the end of the week, and um, the last time I saw Dr. Van Sickle before surgery, and I asked him, would you mind putting a, a pro-athlete chip into my brain? <laughs> and we have yet to see if that took. <laughs> Hoping. <laughs> Um, he actually said, if I did that, I'd be a millionaire. And I'm thinking, you probably are already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I am happy. You asked what the outcome was, and I'm happy to report that I did make it. I am alive. <laughs> so, you touch me, I'm real. <laughs> so, and we would find out two weeks later after the surgery that out of 10 being the highest risk, risk surgery that there is, mine was an 8 and eight-risk surgery, and I'm so glad he didn't tell me this going into surgery. I would have been a wreck, but, and my family would have been a wreck, but to me, that's more validation of the miracle that I had received, and um, the miracle that I had initially envisioned of making it to the Olympic trials looked very different than the miracle I had been given, and that miracle in the prophecy. So I woke up from surgery on October 17th, 2013, which I consider my new birthday, uh, with family and friends around, including Frances. And she took this picture. I'm glad, so glad you had the foresight to take this. And this is my picture of love. I love the look on my dad's face there. I was so relieved that I woke up. And I was told by William and, some, and Mom and some of the others that, I don't know if you noticed this, but they said they could tell an immediate difference in my personality. They said my, uh, well, they said, you're, you know, you're normally somewhat funny, <laughs> but this time you were sharp and you were on. <laughs> normally you're here, but you were here. And I said, I think I was, my brain was just happy to be free from the oppression of the, of the tumor. So... Um, yeah, but we really found out after surgery what the real problem was after we took the MRI the day after, and it was this. <laughs> As you can see, I was hardwired for carbs. And I'm happy to report, though, that after surgery, when Dr. Van Sickle removed all those carbs, I did lose the 30 pounds that I had gained in illness. <laughs> so it was that easy. If you want to go on a weight loss diet, just brain surgery. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, so. Then the day after surgery, this is powerful. The one on the left here was the day after surgery. It was the hole, that big hole that the tumor had left. He had removed the entirety of the tumor, and um, 
So for the year that it took to, to fill in, um, you, people could appropriately call me an airhead. <laughs> but no more, because you look at the one on the right, and that was one year later, almost to the day. And Dr. Van Sickle had said, it, when we looked at the one on the left, he said it will probably fill in no more than 75%. Your brain function will still be good, but it'll probably fill in about no more than 75%. I told him, <laughs> being who I am, I'm going for 100%. <laughs> And, um, and uh, this filled in more than he said, about 90% there. And um, this to me just shows the restoration that God gave me. It uh, shows me the, resi the amazing resiliency of the human body. So um, I was quite pleased with, with that. Um, I, I had a remarkable recovery. Um, I started racing two months after surgery. Um, I couldn't wait to get back up and get at it again. I was in a time capsule for two years. I'm like, let's get going. And so I'm racing competitively again. And I did uh, gain a sponsorship right after in my first year of recovery, and it was Timex, which I find very appropriate because I did take a licking, and I kept on ticking. <laughs> so, um, so this is me, 11 months after surgery. I was determined to run a marathon um, just less than a year from surgery. And by the grace of God, I not only completed the marathon, but I won the master's division. And the master's is 40 and up. It's, it's the geezer group. <laughs> and <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. But that was really, I was just... Uh, smiling from ear to ear. But not only did I win Masters, I also qualified for the Boston Marathon, which was really on my heart to do as well, and I'll be running that in April. And Francis and Bill will be there with us, and see, she'll, they'll be able to see me cross that finish line and hopefully PR it. Um, so the Lord gave me my passion back, but I run with a whole different attitude now. Um, it's not so much for the performance or the defining of me or for beating people, which I do like, but... Um, <laughs> but it's, um, I'm so grateful, I'm oozing gratitude that I'm able to run again. And it's with a whole new joy and strength that each, before each race, I literally pray most races, um, Lord, please let this race be what you want it to be today and teach me the things you want to teach me. And if you will, I'd love to win masters again. <laughs> sometimes he gives it, sometimes not. But I feel like he teaches me something out of each race. But um, I was happy to be able to have run up this, this summer um, Pikes Peak and Mount Evans, and that was my first time up a 14-er. Um, that really symbolized for me the, the tough, um, symbolized for me the tough climb back out, out of my ordeal and to the triumph that awaits us. So um, during my recovery, I stumbled across this verse again. And we've all seen this verse, or maybe not, but um, I was familiar with this verse, and it really struck me um, that this was my story. This verse was my story, and, it, and many of your stories. It was his gospel being played out in my life. It was really powerful to me. And all of these verses that I'm mentioning today are ones that I feel as his gospel played out in, in my, my life, um, since I'm telling my story. <laughs> I waited patiently for the Lord for two years, he turned to me and heard my cry when I was sobbing on my knees, pleading for a diagnosis. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God. He did put a new song in my mouth, which I have been um, shouting from mountaintops my whole recovery as uh, you can see here. And I literally was. I was finishing Mount Evans. So she really has had an incredible miracle in her life, and um, it was cool for me to be able to walk alongside it and witness that whole thing. And uh, I know for me, and maybe for a lot of you, it raises a question. And the question that it tends to raise is, yeah, so Jill's had an awesome miracle, but what about me? What about all the people who maybe didn't have a miracle, or what do you do with that? And, and just the struggle of how do you make sense of that and before God. So Jill, I know you have some thoughts on this you want to share. So. I did. Yeah, that, that one, um, I thought a lot about, my, especially my, my first year of recovery, really kept hitting me hard at times. It really hit me. I, I still, it still comes back to me. But um, 
So when I was freshly out of the hospital and I was just elated and um, oozing with gratitude, like I said, to the point of being obnoxious and probably still am today, and really assimilating all that had happened to me. And at that point, I was like, wow, I was just given a miracle. And so I'm in this place of mountaintop elation. When six weeks out um, of the hospital, we hear on the news that there was a shooting at Arapahoe High School, as I'm sure you're all aware. And Claire Davis was a 17-year-old girl from the high school who got admitted to the same neuro ICU that I had just been released from. And in fact, she had very much the same medical team that I had had in the same hallway. Edre mentioned last night she was even in that same hallway that I was there. She had been shot in the head, had major head trauma, and although it wasn't a brain tumor like mine, it was head trauma, and obviously was close to my heart at the time, and then we would hear that at 17 years old, Claire Davis died. And that hit me, and um, um, I thought about that. And then not much longer than that, in December 2013, um, our beloved Peter had a heart attack, as some of you may know. And I think by all appearances, you are alive, aren't you? Kind of. Yeah? You're a zombie? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. This is not a clone. He's the real deal. And he's doing very well, as you know. Um, just like me, I think. <laughs> but um, anyway. I can't run as fast as you. <laughs> um, I know what this. Yeah, no, I know. I was trying to be witty, but maybe that's the brain thing. <laughs> lost, my, lost my timing. Anyway, yes, so at the same time that, that Peter was doing well, uh, another friend of mine, uh, same age as Peter, uh, Bill Mays, also had a heart attack, and he died instantly. So then it start, this theme started coming to me, one lives, one dies. Um, same, you know, they both had heart attacks, one lives, one dies. And then shortly after that, on January 1st, 2014, uh, as many of you may have heard in nationwide news all of last year, Brittany Maynard uh, was diagnosed on the first of the year when things are supposed to be new hope, you know, for the first of the year and what's this year going to bring. She was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which, is a, which for her was a terminal brain cancer. Now, mine was not cancerous, but hers was. And she was 29 years old, had been married for a little over a year, and she was made nationwide news, lots of controversy around her because she had moved, she and her husband had moved to Oregon to ingest a pill when the time came to end her life to prevent the nasty suffering that glioblastomas can cause uh, at the end. And um, she got a lot of flack and was on 60 Minutes and I was really watching her. So on November 1st, 2014, just 18 days from her 30th birthday, Excuse me. Um, Brittany died, and she did have a brain tumor, and I had a brain tumor, and I was given a miracle. She was only 29. I'm 30. She, oh, it's 40 something, <laughs> and uh, in my 40s, and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed that night. Sobbed really hard upon that news, and I do still at times. That still gets me, and um, I. I know that God is sovereign, um, but I remember asking him, why did I get the miracle and why did she die? And again, one lives, one dies, was this theme. And as I thought about this, that whole first year of recovery, I, not to make this trite or simplistic and we don't all have the answers, but what, I kept, what kept coming back to me was, um, it's God's grace either way. And I know that I'm not any more favored than the one that was taken home or for the one that survived um, but had much difficulty. And I know that I'm not any more favored, and I don't think you are, are you? <laughs> you might be. <laughs> no, Peter's not any more favored either. Um, and I have talked to many uh, brain tumor survivors since mine, and it's actually a lot more common than we realize, and I have to put this fact in that because it's so astounding, 500 people a day in the U.S. are diagnosed with a brain tumor. I didn't know how common it was, but since I've been talking about it so much, I realize how many other people, and I've talked to a lot of brain tumor survivors that didn't have so much of a smooth recovery as I did. And uh, one, one gal at the hospital, that I'm now involved with, um, she had the same tumor as me. Um, she has been left blind and deaf in one side. Mm -hmm. Another one, um, 
Another one, his meningioma was cancerous, which is very rare. Another one, again, same tumor as mine, and he had four surgeries with much complication and an infection and really having a tough time of it. And I realize that we don't know the circumstances of each person's life and how God's working in each one of those individual stories and how his grace is being work out, worked out in each of those individual stories, um, that there's a bigger purpose for each one of those stories. And again, it just, it just came back to me that whether I lived or I had died or I had um, had complications, it's his grace either way. And every time I hear these stories that people tell me that are having difficulties, I think, wow, how did I make it through that minefield unscathed? But I pleaded with God to rescue me, and, and he gave me a miracle. Mm -hmm. But for others, rescuing could look like being taken home. Mm -hmm. And um, I asked Edre, who was with me last night, my chaplain. I went back to the hospital after I'd been released. It was, well, I think, probably into my first year. And, and I said, so how did Jesus choose who he was giving miracles to? Why did some get miracles and not others? And what he said really hit, impacted me. And again, it's not the answer, but this was his take on it. And, and I really grabbed onto it. I resonate with it. And he said, um, I think that it's not so, the miracles were not so much for the one being healed, but for those that are watching. And that has really helped me a lot to think of it that way. Um, so I guess that means, though, it's not all about me after all. <laughs> so Jill, if you had to just kind of summarize what, what things you feel like God has taught you through the trials and suffering and where you are now, um, how would you speak to that, just what you've learned through all this? There is so much I can talk about that. I could go on and on and on and um, write a book about it. But you only have five minutes. I know. <laughs> so we'll just make it real quick. <laughs> so you want me to talk fast. Um, so I'll just give you some key points um, of things that I learned. But um, in one of Peter's sermons, he said, suffering creates fertile ground for growth. And I do pay attention to your sermons. <laughs> Even with the brain tumor, all the more so, more so now. Now, this was post-surgery, yeah. <laughs> um, but this was true for me because it has been a tremendous sanctification process, a tremendous growth process for me um, that has taught me a lot. What could have been the most traumatic experience of my life um, ended up being one of my most precious experiences. And um, it has enriched my life in so many ways. So I feel like, not to be cliche, but I feel like a, um, a new mission field has been created out of this for me. I know you've told me, you've mentioned before that sometimes out of our greatest pain arises our greatest calling. And for me, I think this has been, uh, this has been true. Um, if I, had been in if I had been told in advance that my mission was to suffer two years of debilitating illness and misdiagnosis followed by um, top-risk brain surgery, I'd have said, no way, are you kidding me? Give me the Olympic trials. <laughs> I said, no, uh-uh. Um, and I probably wouldn't have trusted him um, if I knew that was the miracle that I was so eagerly awaiting. Um, and I would have missed out on one of the biggest blessings of my life. Um, but now I realize that way more people are being inspired and encouraged than if I had just simply made the trials and that God is getting a lot more glory that way. Um, it, it has enabled me to reach people that I never thought I could reach and um, has given me a certain credential badge that I didn't have to get a PhD, I didn't have to get certain certification, but it's given me a credential credentials to be able to talk to, uh, I volunteer now at the hospital that saved my life at Littleton Adventist, and I feel like it's given me credentials to be able to talk with patients. And it's been a year now, every Monday morning I go and stock uh, patient shelves, you know, patient rooms on the oncology floor, but I use this as a back door to be able to talk with patients, um, some, to encourage and inspire them, and uh, offer hope rather, and um, sometimes I'm able to weave my own story in there. And I've seen some people's eyes literally wide open looking at, well, you look so healthy, you look good, it's great, and maybe it gives them a little bit of hope. So uh, I also serve on a couple committees in, at the hospital to improve patient experience. And I'm, I've given my testimony multiple times in the hospital to various, to various groups. 
and chaplains will stop me in the hall sometimes and say, hey, um, I know a patient whose story I think you could reach. Would you mind going and sharing your story or spending time with them? Or, or pray, could you pray for this patient, go pray with them? So I feel like it's enabled me to, through my suffering, I'm able to better walk alongside somebody else that's suffering and to understand what that's like. I learned, like I mentioned earlier, the power of presence. Um, in the hospital, I was never left alone. And how important presence, just mere presence, you don't have to say the right thing, do the right thing, just presence. And I never knew what to do with myself in a hospital. I was intimidated. I never really spent time in a hospital. My parents have been in the hospital, but I was clueless as to how to be there for them. But now I feel like I have a lot of comfort in understanding, having been in that hospital bed and having been on that couch for two years, how to be present alongside their own trauma. You know, and I, I have a new heart for that. I also, because I can't stop, I was on the couch for two years, I have to make up for lost time, but I also volunteer for the American Brain Tumor Association, trying to be an advocate for brain tumor awareness, hence the statistic earlier. <laughs> um, I am contacted, not through the association, but through friends and people who know me, I'm, t I'm contacted often uh, to be able to um, encourage somebody, hey Jill, somebody was just diagnosed, would you mind contacting them and, and just encouraging them or helping them understand how to get through it. Um, so the, the big kicker here is what I learned through why, why what I learned through my suffering is, um, so I was diagnosed in 2013, however in retrospect, um, we could have found the tumor and we could have been diagnosed five years prior. Um, when, if I hadn't walked out in, on an MRI appointment that I had had in 2008. So that was five years prior. Um, I had an appointment because in retrospect, I was picking up on symptoms very subtly. I just didn't know I was picking up on symptoms. And I had some bouts of vertigo and I went to a neurologist and he sent me appropriately to, the, um, to get an MRI. And I showed up and I was looking over the risks and one of the risks for the contrast is death. And I thought, I don't have enough symptoms to warrant that kind of risk. So I excused myself from the appointment and left. But in retrospect, we would have found the tumor that day. However, I don't second guess the timing of it at all. Because if I had discovered the tumor that day, it would have bypassed that two years of suffering and debilitation and all the things that I went through would have um, short-circuited all the things that God was developing in me, and which included, def, you know, the redefining of me into his image. And I mean, that's a work in progress till we're face to face with him, but it stripped me down from defining myself as the athlete. Um, it um, put me in a place, it, well, it, it made me realize uh, his bigger dreams for me. It would have short-circuited all of that if we had found that tumor sooner, um, because it, I, I wouldn't have been sidelined from my sport. I would have um, still felt strong. We would have gotten the tumor out. I would have gone, gone on. Um, I wouldn't have had the depth of gratitude that I will probably forever have with that. I w wouldn't have learned all those things I just mentioned and those credentials and the power of presence and all those things. So there are all kinds of things that would have been circumvented if, if we had found that tumor five years sooner. So all kinds of fruits came out of, I think, that suffering. But the last thing that it taught me, not, it's not the last thing, the last thing I'll mention today, but is that it taught me not to be afraid of pain. In my case, if I didn't have the headaches, those excruciating headaches, I wouldn't have gotten an MRI and I would have died of an undiagnosed brain tumor. So the pain, whether physical or emotional, uh, lets us know that something's wrong. And it leads us to the doctor or ultimately to the great physician. So um, it's, it's really scary being led to the cross. Um, it could result in pain and death, um, but pain and death always leads to resurrection. And you can't have a resurrection without the crucifixion. So um, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 
So I thought that God put the dream in my heart to go for the Olympic trials to inspire and to encourage others and to glorify him. I thought this is how I would glorify him, but thankfully, God had bigger dreams for me and, uh, than making the Olympic trials. So we think we understand the way that we envision it, um, but he has bigger ways than we grab onto ourselves, and we can't get that if we're holding on so tightly to our own dreams and our own vision. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And as we're told in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our course is marked out for us, so whatever your course may be, Run it with perseverance, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so we've heard Jill's story here today, but really a lot of the things she said mirrors our own story too. Um, we, all, we all go into life having dreams. And at some point, we often find that those dreams fall apart. We go through some kind of trials or things we never expected we'd be facing. And somewhere, I would bet, like, uh, we're all in the middle of the story somewhere in a certain chapter. And it may be one of suffering and pain, or it may be one of celebration. Um, but God is writing a story, and he, he, wants, he wants you to hand him the scripts uh, and so that he can... He can uh, author the story of your life and write that script in with the meaning that he has. So when we come to the table here uh, today, um, bring your story to the table and trust him with it. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he, he broke it saying, take heat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it saying, drink, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So come to the table and bring your story and receive him, receive his meaning on your story. Um, the brown cups are wine, the white cups are juice, and it's the body and blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So today as you get ready to go, um, I just want you to um, acknowledge your fears and turn towards God with those fears. Life has a way of passing a lot of things our way that are really pretty scary, to be honest. So it's okay to have the fears. It's just saying turn towards him and run to his presence and uh, be with him in his love and grace that he has for you. Run to his presence through each other. My hope is that we'd be a community, that we could be a taste of God's love and God's presence to each other, whatever those trials might be, whether it's health, whether it's divorce, whether it's uh, I don't have a job or my kids are turned, turning against me, whatever it might be. So as you go today, um, I'm, my prayer is that you're inspired by Jill's story, but also to just love one another really, we really well when we're afraid and going through trials. So um, God be with you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>